Good morning. I invite you to return to your seats. And I'm going to try this again. I accept I expect a response this time. Good morning. I'm Pastor Steve, one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. It's my privilege to bring you this message from Hebrews 1 this morning. Well, I've mentioned before that It's a Wonderful Life is one of my all-time favorite movies. And in that movie, the guardian angel Clarence is one of my favorite characters. But while that's a wonderful and worthwhile movie for entertainment purposes, its theology of angels is anti-biblical. Angels are not people who have died and earn second-class status until they earn their wings through good deeds. That's one of the countless misunderstandings that circulate in the secular world, and dare I say also in the Christian world, about angels. Hebrews 1, 4 through 14, contains perhaps the largest collection of uh, verses that teach us about angels in the Bible. But as Jason said in his call to worship this morning, that's not the main purpose of this passage of Scripture. The author's purpose is to show us the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, over the angels, and even, as we'll see in a moment, a higher purpose is in his mind as he does that. Now, last week, Pastor Jason helped us to soar to the heights of heaven as he magnified for our hearts and our minds the magnificence of the glory of Jesus Christ, as detailed in the first four verses of Hebrews 1. In those verses, the author of Hebrews makes seven assertions about Jesus Christ. He was appointed the heir of all things. He was the agent of creation. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins, after which he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And it's that last assertion that is in verse 4 that is our transition to this passage this morning. For in Hebrews 5 through 14, the author fires a volley of seven old-fashioned, old-fashioned, Old Testament citations that show that Jesus is superior to the angels. And yet, we're going to see that even that is not his primary purpose. As we move on, and the argument continues from Hebrews 1 and all the way through Hebrews 2, that his purpose is to show that the new covenant founded on the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and mediated by him as the perfect high priest, 
is far superior to the old covenant that was mediated to Moses by angels. And my prayer for you today is that you will be overwhelmed by the magnificence of Jesus Christ in such a dramatic way that your lives will be forever and fundamentally changed. As the Holy Spirit conforms you more and more into the image of Christ. You see, it's one thing to know in your minds that Jesus is superior to the angels. And it's another thing entirely to stake your life on that knowledge. Now, these seven Old Testament citations that we find here in Hebrews 1 could be broken up into three pairs each of which have a common theme showing the superiority of Jesus over angels, and then one final citation that then is contrasted with a concluding statement about angels to once again show his superiority. And so we'll kick off starting with the first pair of Old Testament quotations that, that appear in verse 5 of Hebrews 1, and it starts off with a rhetorical question. Now, kids, look at me. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a question that somebody asks, but they don't want you to answer it because the answer is so obvious. Let me give you an example. Let's say that your mom is in the kitchen fixing supper, and she's slaving over a hot stove, and you go into the kitchen for maybe the 50th time in a one-hour period, and ask her to come play a game with you. And your mother patiently responded to you the first 49 times, but on the 50th time, she snaps somewhat, and she says, Do I look like I have time to play right now? Now, your mother does not want you to answer that question. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. No, she does not have time to play with you right now. So look at verse 5 and see if you can spot the rhetorical question. When we get verse 5 up there, you can look at it. <laughs> or maybe not. Look in your Bibles. Look in your parents' Bibles. It starts with this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And, or again, I will be a, to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The rhetorical question is, to which of the angels did God ever say that? And the answer is obvious. God said that to no angel ever. Although in the Old Testament, a few times angels are referred to as sons of God because they're his created beings, no individual angel is ever given the title of Son of God. Now, the first citation that we find in verse 5 comes from Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2 was, is thought to be part of a coronation ceremony for kings who descended from David. In the original context, the psalm speaks of nations and rulers who rebel against God and against his anointed, which in their context, would be the king. It confidently asserts that God will overthrow the rebellion 
through the awesome power of the king that sits on the throne. Years later, Jewish scholars came to understand that this psalm referred to a future king of, of uh, Israel that God would establish in the last days. And the author of Hebrews correctly connects Jesus to this passage. Jesus is the only son of God the Father. And God the Father himself testified to that at Jesus' baptism. Look at Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father, not angels. The second citation, also in verse 5, comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, David has expressed to God a desire to build a temple for him. And God sends his answer back to David through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan tells David that, no, God doesn't want you to build a temple for him, but your son Solomon will build the temple. However, God says to David through Nathan that David's line, the royal line of kings coming from David, his descendants, that that line will never end. Now, if you read Old Testament history, you know that that line did end physically at the, when, the, when they were taken captivity into Babylon. And so that was a big question in the Old Testament. Did God's word fail? But the answer the author of Hebrews tells us is no, God's word did not fail because Jesus, who was physically a descendant of David, Jesus is the king in the royal line of David whose rule will never end. The author uses these two Old Testament passages to support his claim that Jesus is superior to the angels because he and he alone is the Son of God, which puts him in a unique position, equal with the Father and far above that of angels. And for us, for you, beloved, since Jesus as the Son of God is so far above the angels, and by extension, even farther above us, surely he is worthy for you to base your faith and your life on. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The next pair of quotations are found in verses 6 and 7, and they affirm Jesus' exalted position that demands the worship of angels. Look at verse 6. And again, continuing from verse 5, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, that first line of verse 6, when he brings his firstborn into the world, is a subject of much debate among biblical scholars. 
And, and it centers on when did this actually take place that God brought his firstborn into the world and says, let all God's angels worship him. To, uh, to me, when I first read that, it sounds, well, it's obvious that's when Jesus was born, right? But there are very good biblical cases also made that it could be referring to the time after Jesus' resurrection and ascension when he is ascended into heaven and Jesus introduces him into the heavenly realm and all of the angels bow down before him. And there also can be a really good case made for when Jesus returns a second time and comes to finally establish his kingdom and put down all of his enemies and all of the heavenly host worship him. I don't have time to present all the arguments. I don't have time to even present reasons why I think that the second option is the best that fits the context, that this is referring to not Jesus' birth, but rather when Jesus ascended into heaven, was introduced into the heavenly realm as the firstborn of the Father, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty, and all of the angels bowed before him. In that case, when it says he introduces the firstborn into the world, it would not be our physical world, but the heavenly realm where God's throne is. Now, it's not clear exactly what Old Testament verse the author is quoting here. There are a couple of possibilities. One is Psalm 97.7, which in ESV says, Worship him, all you gods. Where the Greek translation, if you read the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the word angels in place of gods. And so it would say, worship him, all you angels. Or it could be taken from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 43, which says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, where again, the word gods there would refer to the angels. Both of these passages, what I think is interesting, is both of these passages are encouraging the people of Israel to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the author of Hebrews shows no compunction about taking those passages and applying them to Jesus Christ, emphasizing to his readers in the first century that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. He is divine. He is in a position where he is co-equal with the Father. And therefore, the angels bow down to worship him. The second citation of this second pair comes in verse 7. And rather than talking about the Son, it gives a contrasting statement about angels. In verse 7, see, in, in verses 5 and 6, he says, To what angel has he ever said this? And he gives three citations about the Son and his status and now he's saying, but of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 104, 4, which uses not the word angels, but the word messengers, if you read it in the ESV. But the, the meaning is obvious, talking about angels. Now, don't take this verse literally to say, oh, well, then the wind must be angels. 
Or if I've got a fire roaring, that must be angels. Certainly they could appear as wind or fire, but the point here is higher than that. The point is that the angels are creatures created by God, created by the Son of God, and they serve God, serve God as His ministers. I like what Peter O'Brien says in his commentary. He says, quote, This comparison of the Son and angels further elaborates verses 1 to 4, where it is asserted that the Son is heir of all things and the one through whom God made the universe. Angels, by contrast, are created beings and are subject to the Son as the exalted Lord, end quote. Jesus is superior to the angels because his position as God's Son is superior to theirs and thus demands that he be worshipped by the angels and all of the heavenly host. And church, if the heavenly host is worshipping the Son of God, what is that saying to us? That our lives should be filled with worship of Jesus Christ because He and He alone is worthy of all of our affection, all of our allegiance, and all of our adoration. The third pair of citations from the Old Testament come in verses 8 through 12. The first of those pair is in verses 8 and 9 and focuses on the eternal and unchanging nature of the Son. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, so now we're changing. First two verses, 5 and 6, talking about the Son, and then verse 7, he says, of the angels, he says, and now the author goes back, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this quotation comes from Psalm 45, which was originally written to celebrate the wedding of one of David's descendants. And it's interesting to me because it says, Your throne, O God, but they're talking to the king. And that kind of strikes me as odd, except when we think about it, the king represented God to the people, didn't he? And he sat on the throne that was established by God. And he was ruling with the power of God. It reminds me of when we preach through Exodus, and God says to Moses, Look, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. Because Moses was representing Yahweh to Pharaoh, and he was acting not in his own power, but in the power of Yahweh. But the author of Hebrews once again sees Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. It is Jesus whose throne is forever and ever. It is Jesus who has the scepter of uprightness who loved righteousness and hated wickedness more than any other. It is Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, who was anointed with the oil 
of gladness. I loved how Jason showed us last week how Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. Because in the Old Testament, those were the three offices where people were anointed. And Jesus is anointed by the Father with the oil of gladness, which makes me think of Hebrews 12, where it says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and suffered through its shame. A joy that he was looking forward to, a joy that surpasses the joy of his heavenly host companions, the angels, who will never know the joy of redemption. The second citation of the third pair is in verses 10 through 12 and quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Psalm 102 is mostly a psalm of lament. The psalmist is lamenting the distress he faces in his life. He laments the shortness of his life. He laments the opposition of the enemies and the wrath of the Lord. And yet he has hope that his powerful God, Yahweh, will restore his city and his nation because, he, because Yahweh reigns eternally and keeps his covenant promises. And again, the author of Hebrews takes a psalm about Yahweh and applies it to Jesus. And these verses contrast the eternal existence of the Son of God with the temporary nature of of his creation, which is compared to a garment. Clothing gets old and stained and worn out. You know, we used to laugh about my dad's rotation of clothes that he always had. In my dad's closet, I think on the right-hand side, he kept his good clothes. Those were suits and shirts that he would wear to church and that he would wear to work. And when they got a little bit old and worn, he would slide those down to the other side of his closet, and those were what he referred to as his everyday clothes. He would wear those clothes to the store or around the house, and when they got too worn for that function, he would then rotate them out to the garage, and they became his garden clothes. And he would wear those clothes out to the garden, and obviously they'd get all stained and he'd snag them on a fence or a tool, and they'd get holes in them until finally my mom would be too embarrassed for him to be out and seen by neighbors working in the garden in these clothes that had holes in inappropriate places. And so when he wasn't around, she would sneak out to the garage and take those clothes and throw them in the trash or make rags out of them. I think that if my, if my dad's rotation of clothes was a metaphor for my body, I think I'm probably in the garden clothes portion of my life. But the Son of God 
will never wear out. Jesus is unchangeable. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus was there at the beginning, creating the world, and Jesus will be there at the end when the world, like a garment, is rolled up and tossed out and replaced with something better. He is the eternal Son of God, and beloved in this world that is full of sin and misery, in this world where even our joys wear out or wear off, we are in desperate need to base our lives on this Son who alone is stable, enduring, satisfying, and everlasting. The final Old Testament citation in Hebrews 1 can be found in verse 13, and it points to the final destiny of Jesus. Notice that it starts with the same rhetorical question. There's that phrase again, kids, the same rhetorical question that we had in verse 5. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? For your feet. Again, the resounding answer to that is that God has never, ever, ever said that to any angel. Ever. This is a quotation from Psalm 110, which is about the last days of the messianic king who's descended from David and will triumph over his enemies. And the people of God will offer themselves freely to this priestly king. And the author of Hebrews, one more time, sees the fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who upon his ascension sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high to be worshipped by the heavenly host and who will triumph over all of his enemies. The angels, by contrast, do not rule. They serve. Look at verse 14. Speaking of angels, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Notice three things about angels in this verse. First, they're spirits. Although at times in the Bible they have appeared in physical form to people, they are spirits. Second, they are ministering spirits who are sent out by God to serve. That's their status. That's their station in life, to serve. And third, they serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your salvation from the wrath of God, then angels are ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for your sake. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we all have a Clarence who's looking out for us, but it does at least mean that God uses angels to accomplish good in the lives of his people for his glory. Jesus is superior to the angels because he's the Son of God 
and they are not. He's superior to the angels because he has a status above theirs, co-equal with the Father. And they fall down on their faces and worship him. And Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the eternal creator, the eternal king. And the angels were created by him. And the recipients of this letter in the first century... Jewish Christians primarily needed to have this hammered home to them. Yes, they needed to know that Jesus was superior to the angels, but even more importantly, they needed to know that the new covenant mediated by this superior Savior is better than the old covenant mediated to Moses by angels. And as we move on into chapter 2, we're going to see that therefore you should hold fast to that great salvation. Therefore you must pay more, a closer attention to it, lest you drift away. Therefore you should not revert to the practices of the old covenant because it is obsolete. That's what they needed to hear in first century. But what about us? What does this passage teach us? Well, first of all, I think this passage does a great job teaching us how to read the Old Testament. As we've seen when we preach through the book of of, uh, Exodus, or when we preach through Psalms or some other Old Testament books, we should think about Old Testament passages in a number of ways. We should always ask, what, is the passage, what did the passage mean in its original context to the original readers? And not subvert that meaning. But then we must also ask, what does it mean in light of the coming of Jesus Christ? So many of the characters in the, New, in the Old Testament can be seen as pointing to Christ because they typify some characteristic of his. Samson comes to mind. Although he was not a righteous man all of the time, his power typifies the omnipotent power of Jesus Christ. So many of the words of prophecy meant one thing, To those people back in 500 B.C. or so, but the ultimate fulfillment of many of those prophecies comes in Jesus Christ. Now we have to be careful and use caution not to bend and twist meanings of things in the Old Testament to fit what we want it to fit, but we should always be on the lookout for Jesus in the Old Testament. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the mourning disciples who were on their way home to Emmaus, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, which for them was the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. The story, the overarching story of the Old Testament is all pointing toward a Savior, Someone who will come and rescue his people. Come in the flesh. So don't avoid the Old Testament. Read it with delight. 
Use a good study Bible or a commentary to help you if you want. But ask the Holy Spirit to help you see Jesus leaping from the pages of the Old Testament. Secondly, we can learn how we ought to relate to angels. It's easy to read today's passage and say, well, obviously the author thought that that he, or the author was worried that the people he was writing to were worshiping angels. And that's possible. It's possible that they were, but there's no evidence of that that we can find in that particular group. And it appears that the author, as I said, have said several times, has a more all-encompassing goal in mind, to show Jesus Christ and the new covenant founded in his blood is far superior to the angels and the law that they gave to Moses. Now, I doubt that any of you are tempted to worship angels, but just in case you are, let me share Revelation 22, 8 and 9 with you. The author John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. The angel is a fellow servant with us. So don't worship him. Rather, he says the last two words, worship God. So heed the words of the angel. Worship God alone. So how should we relate to angels? Well, I don't know. I've never seen one as far as I know. They're ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And if you're a follower of Christ, they're your unseen helpers. The best way to relate to them, give thanks to God for them. Don't obsess over them. Yeah, I know they're cool. But Jesus is cooler. If you're a follower of Christ, trust that God will work all things together for your good and for his glory. And if he decides to use angels to do that, then glory to God. But the most important thing that we can learn from Hebrews chapter 1 is not how to read the Old Testament or what it teaches us about angels, but rather to relate to Jesus as the amazingly awesome God that he is. And the author strives in this passage to show us how much greater he is than angels. It's a lesser to greater argument. If you think angels are something special, wait until you see the Son of God. The Son of God who's the creator of the world. The one who sustains every created thing in this world by the word of his mouth. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God. The one who is the exact imprint of his nature. The one to whom God the Father said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The one who made purification for sins through his death on the cross. The one who destroyed death by triumphantly rising from the grave. The one who destroyed Satan and freed his people from the fear of death. 
the one who ascended into heaven, the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one whom all of the heavenly hosts fall down to worship. We sang the song, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. You know what it means to prostrate yourself? It means to fall flat on the ground with your face in the dirt because of the overwhelming magnificence of the one in whose presence you are. And I would add to that song, let all God's people prostrate fall before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. Jesus Christ is the one whom you can trust to do what he has promised. Jesus Christ is the one you can stake your life on, the one who will never desert you in times of trouble, the one who will never let you down. And Jesus Christ, the only one who is worthy of your devotion and worthy of your adoration and worthy of your love, and worthy of your obedience. And we sing that song so often. Lord, make my heart believe that Jesus is better. Yes, he's better than the angels, but he is better than all created things. And he's better in every situation. Pray and ask God to make your heart believe that in every sorrow, Jesus is better. That in every victory, Jesus is better. Than any comfort, Jesus is better. Than any riches, Jesus is better. And let the words of your mouth declare that Jesus is worthy of your worship. And let your actions declare that Jesus is worthy of your worship. Let your choices declare that Jesus is worthy of your worship. Let your lives declare that Jesus is worthy of your worship. Jesus is the only king worth serving. And Jesus is the only source, the only source, of complete joy and complete satisfaction and your complete fulfillment as a human being. So hold fast by faith to your superior Savior, even as he holds fast to you. We're going to take communion now. If you aren't trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, oh, I plead with you today. I plead with you to see him as the one thing in life that you can count on. Every other, there, are, there are many really good religions, but there is only one religion, and that is the religion founded on the blood of Jesus Christ that takes care of sin.
that, has, that can take care of sin, that can forgive you of sin, release you from the bondage to sin. So receive him by faith. This communion meal doesn't mean anything to you, not yet. So I ask you not to partake of it if you're not following Jesus Christ as your Savior. But if you are, if you're trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, and if you've had that profession of faith affirmed in a, in a church through baptism, then whether you're a member of Piney Ridge Church or not, you're welcome to partake of communion with us. How we do it in our church is we go exit our rows to the left, and we come down to one of the carts in the front. If you need gluten-free, there's a special cart in the front for gluten-free on the left. And take it back to your seat, and then either by yourself or with friends or with family, pray and ask God to open your eyes even more to the glory of Jesus Christ. And as you take the wafer that refers to his body that was broken for you and drink the juice that speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for your sin, let your heart soar rejoicing in this great superior Savior that you have. For those of you who should, you may now come.